Section twelve of Kazan by James Oliver Curwood. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leonard Wilson. Chapter twelve The Red Death. Kazan and Grey Wolf wandered northward into the Fond du Lac country, and were there when Jacques, a Hudson Bay Company's runner, came up to the post from the south with the first authentic news of the dread plague, the smallpox. For weeks there had been rumors on all sides, and rumor grew into rumor. From the east, the south, and the west they multiplied, until on all sides the Paul Reveres of the wilderness were carrying word that La Mort Rouge, the Red Death, was at their heels, and the chill of a great fear swept like a shivering wind from the edge of civilization to the bay. Nineteen years before, these same rumors had come up from the south, and the Red Terror had followed. The horror of it still remained with the forest people, for a thousand unmarked graves, shunned like a pestilence, and scattered from the lower waters of James Bay to the lake country of the Athabasca, gave evidence of the toll it demanded. Now and then in their wanderings, Kazan and Grey Wolf had come upon the little mounds that covered the dead. Instinct, something that was infinitely beyond the comprehension of man, made them feel the presence of death about them, perhaps smell it in the air. Grey Wolf's wild blood and her blindness gave her an immense advantage over Kazan when it came to detecting those mysteries of the air and the earth which the eyes were not made to see. Each day that had followed that terrible moonlit night on the sun-rock, when the lynx had blinded her, had added to the infallibility of her two chief senses, hearing and scent, and it was she who discovered the presence of the plague first, just as she had scented the great forest fire hours before Kazan had found it in the air. Kazan had lured her back to a trap-line, the trail they found was old. It had not been traveled for many days. In a trap they found a rabbit, but it had been dead a long time. In another there was the carcass of a fox, torn into bits by the owls. Most of the traps were sprung. Others were covered with snow. Kazan, with his three-quarters strain of dog, ran over the trail from trap to trap, intent only on something alive meat to devour. Grey Wolf, in her blindness, scented death. It shivered in the treetops above her. She found it in every trap-house they came to. Death. Man-death. It grew stronger and stronger, and she whined and nipped Kazan's flank. And Kazan went on. Grey Wolf followed him to the edge of the clearing in which Loti's cabin stood, and then she sat back on her haunches, raised her blind face to the gray sky, and gave a long and wailing cry. In that moment the bristles began to stand up along Kazan's spine. Once, long ago, he had howled before the tepee of a master who was newly dead, and he settled back on his haunches and gave the death cry with Grey Wolf. He, too, scented it now. Death was in the cabin, and over the cabin there stood a sapling pole, and at the end of the pole there fluttered a strip of red cotton rag, the warning flag of the plague 
from Athabasca to the bay. This man, like a hundred other heroes of the north, had run up the warning before he laid himself down to die. And that same night, in the cold light of the moon, Kazan and Grey Wolf swung northward into the country of the Fond du Lac. There preceded them a messenger from the post on Reindeer Lake, who was passing up the warning that had come from Nelson House and the country to the southeast. "'There's smallpox on the Nelson,' the messenger informed Williams at Fond du Lac, "'and it has struck the Crees on Wollaston Lake. God only knows what it is doing to the Bay Indians, but we hear it is wiping out the Chippewas between the Albany and the Churchill.' He left the same day with his winded dogs. "'I'm off to carry word to the Revillon people to the west,' he explained. Three days later word came from Churchill that all of the company's servants and his majesty's subjects west of the bay should prepare themselves for the coming of the Red Terror. William's thin face turned as white as the paper he held as he read the words of the Churchill factor. "'It means dig graves,' he said. "'That's the only preparation we can make.' He read the paper aloud to the men at Fond du Lac, and every available man was detailed to spread the warning throughout the post's territory. There was a quick harnessing of dogs, and on each sledge that went out was a roll of red cotton cloth, rolls that were ominous of death, lurid signals of pestilence and horror, whose touch sent shuddering chills through the men who were about to scatter them among the forest people. Kazan and Grey Wolf struck the trail of one of these sledges on the Grey Beaver, and followed it for half a mile. The next day, farther to the west, they struck another, and on the fourth day still a third. The last trail was fresh, and Grey Wolf drew back from it as if stung, her fangs snarling. On the wind there came to them the pungent odor of smoke. They cut at right angles to the trail. Grey Wolf, leaping clear of the marks in the snow, and climbed to the cap of a ridge. To windward of them, and down in the plain, a cabin was burning. A team of huskies and a man were disappearing in the spruce forest. Deep down in his throat Kazan gave a rumbling whine. Grey Wolf stood as rigid as a rock. In the cabin a plague-dead man was burning. It was the law of the North, and the mystery of the funeral pyre came again, to Kazan and Grey Wolf. This time they did not howl, but slunk down into the farther plain, and did not stop that day until they had buried themselves deep in a dry and sheltered swamp ten miles to the north. After this they followed the days and weeks which marked the winter of 1910 as one of the most terrible in all the history of the Northland. A single month in which wild life as well as human hung in the balance, and when cold, starvation, and plague wrote a chapter in the lives of the forest people which will not be forgotten for generations to come. In the swamp Kazan and Grey Wolf found a home under a windfall. It was a small, comfortable nest, shut in entirely from the snow and wind. Grey Wolf took possession of it immediately. She flattened herself out on her belly, and panted to show Kazan her contentment and satisfaction. Nature again kept Kazan close at her side. A vision came to him, unreal and dreamlike, 
of that wonderful night under the stars, ages and ages ago it seemed, when he had fought the leader of the wolf-pack, and young Grey Wolf had crept to his side after his victory, and had given herself to him for mate. But this mating season there was no running after the doe or the caribou, or mingling with the wild pack. They lived chiefly on rabbit and spruce partridge, because of Grey Wolf's blindness. Kazan could hunt those alone. The hare had now grown over Grey Wolf's sightless eyes. She had ceased to grieve, to rub her eyes with her paws, to whine for the sunlight, the golden moon, and the stars. Slowly she began to forget that she had ever seen those things. She could now run more swiftly at Kazan's flank. Scent and hearing had become wonderfully keen. She could wind a caribou two miles distant, and the presence of man she could pick up at an even greater distance. On a still night she had heard the splash of a trout half a mile away, and as these two things, scent and hearing, became more and more developed in her, those same senses became less active in Kazan. He began to depend upon Grey Wolf. She would point out the hiding-place of a partridge fifty yards from their trail. In their hunts she became the leader, until game was found, and as Kazan learned to trust to her in the hunt, so he began just as instinctively to heed her warnings. If Grey Wolf reasoned, it was to the effect that without Kazan she would die. She had tried hard now and then to catch a partridge or a rabbit, but she had always failed. Kazan meant life to her. And if she reasoned, it was to make herself indispensable to her mate. Blindness had made her different than she would otherwise have been. Again, nature promised motherhood to her. But she did not, as she would have done in the open and with sight, hold more and more aloof from Kazan as the days passed. It was her habit, spring, summer, and winter, to snuggle close to Kazan, and lie with her beautiful head resting on his neck or back. If Kazan snarled at her, she did not snap back, but slunk down as though struck a blow. With her warm tongue she would lick away the ice that froze to the long hair between Kazan's toes. For days after he had run a sliver in his paw, she nursed his foot. Blindness had made Kazan absolutely necessary to her existence, and now, in a different way, she became more and more necessary to Kazan. They were happy in their swamp home. There was plenty of small game about them, and it was warm under the windfall. Rarely did they go beyond the limits of the swamp to hunt. Out on the more distant plains and the barren ridges, they occasionally heard the cry of the wolf-pack on the trail of meat, but it no longer thrilled them with the desire to join in the chase. One day they struck farther than usual to the west. They left the swamp, crossed a plain over which a fire had swept the preceding year, climbed a ridge, and descended into a second plain. At the bottom Grey Wolf stopped and sniffed the air. At these times Kazan always watched her, waiting eagerly and nervously if the scent was too faint for him to catch. But today he caught the edge of it, and he knew why Grey Wolf's ears flattened and her hindquarters drooped. 
the scent of game would have made her rigid and alert but it was not the game smell it was human and gray wolf slunk behind kazan and whined for several minutes they stood without moving or making a sound and then kazan led the way on less than three hundred yards away they came to a thick clump of scrub spruce and almost ran into a snow-smothered tepee it was abandoned life and fire had not been there for a long time but from the tepee had come the man's smell with legs rigid and his spine quivering kazan approached the opening to the tepee he looked in in the middle of the tepee lying on the charred embers of a fire lay a ragged blanket and in the blanket was wrapped the body of a little indian child kazan could see the tiny moccasined feet but so long had death been there that he could scarcely smell the presence of it he drew back and saw gray wolf cautiously nosing about a long and peculiarly shaped hummock in the snow she had traveled about it three times but never approaching nearer than a man could have reached with a rifle barrel at the end of her third circle she sat down on her haunches and kazan went close to the hummock and sniffed under that bulge in the snow as well as in the tepee there was death they slunk away their ears flattened and their tails drooping until they trailed the snow and did not stop until they reached their swamp home even there gray wolf still sniffed the horror of the plague and her muscles twitched and shivered as she lay close at kazan's side that night the big white moon had around its edge a crimson rim it meant cold intense cold always the plague came in the days of greatest cold the lower the temperature the more terrible its havoc it grew steadily colder that night and the increased chill penetrated to the heart of the windfall and drew kazan and gray wolf closer together with dawn which came at about eight o'clock kazan and his blind mate sallied forth into the day it was fifty degrees below zero about them the trees cracked with reports like pistol shots in the thickest spruce the partridges were humped into round balls of feathers the snowshoe rabbits had burrowed deep under the snow or to the heart of the heaviest windfalls kazan and gray wolf found few fresh trails and after an hour of fruitless hunting they returned to their lair kazan dog-like had buried the half of a rabbit two or three days before and they dug this out of the snow and ate the frozen flesh all that day it grew colder steadily colder the night that followed was cloudless with a white moon and brilliant stars the temperature had fallen another ten degrees and nothing was moving traps were never sprung on such nights for even the furred things the mink and the ermine and the lynx lay snug in the holes and the nests they had found for themselves an increasing hunger was not strong enough to drive kazan and gray wolf from their windfall the next day there was no break in the terrible cold and toward noon kazan set out on a hunt for meat leaving gray wolf in the windfall being three-quarters dog food was more necessary to kazan than to his mate nature has fitted the wolf breed for famine and in ordinary temperature gray wolf could have lived for a fortnight without food at sixty degrees below zero 
she could exist a week, perhaps ten days. Only thirty hours had passed since they had devoured the last of the frozen rabbit, and she was quite satisfied to remain in their snug retreat. But Kazan was hungry. He began to hunt in the face of the wind, traveling toward the burned plain. He nosed about every windfall that he came to, and investigated the thickets. A thin, shot-like snow had fallen, and in this, from the windfall to the burn, he found but a single trail, and that was the trail of an ermine. Under a windfall he caught the warm scent of a rabbit, but the rabbit was as safe from him there as were the partridges in the trees, and after an hour of futile digging and gnawing he gave up his effort to reach it. For three hours he had hunted when he returned to Grey Wolf. He was exhausted, while Grey Wolf, with the instinct of the wild, had saved her own strength and energy. Kazan had been burning up his reserve forces, and was hungrier than ever. The moon rose clear and brilliant in the sky again that night, and Kazan set out once more on the hunt. He urged Grey Wolf to accompany him, whining for her outside the windfall, returning for her twice. But Grey Wolf laid her ears aslant and refused to move. The temperature had now fallen to sixty-five or seventy degrees below zero, and with it there came from the north an increasing wind, making the night one in which human life could not have existed for an hour. By midnight Kazan was back under the windfall. The wind grew stronger. It began to wail in mournful dirges over the swamp, and then it burst in fierce shrieking volleys, with intervals of quiet between. These were the first warnings from the great barrens that lay between the last lines of timber and the Arctic. With morning the storm burst in all its fury from out of the north, and Grey Wolf and Kazan lay close together and shivered as they listened to the roar of it over the windfall. Once Kazan thrust his head and shoulders out from the shelter of the fallen trees, but the storm drove him back. Everything that possessed life had sought shelter according to its way and instinct. The furred creatures like the mink and the ermine were safest, for during the warmer hunting days they were of the kind that cached meat. The wolves and the foxes had sought out the windfalls and the rocks. Winged things, with the exception of the owls, who were a tenth part body and nine-tenths feathers, burrowed under snowdrifts or found shelter in thick spruce. To the hoofed and horned animals the storm meant greatest havoc. The deer, the caribou, and the moose could not crawl under windfalls or creep between rocks. The best they could do was to lie down in the lee of a drift, and allow themselves to be covered deep with the protecting snow. Even then they could not keep their shelter long, for they had to eat. For eighteen hours out of the twenty-four the moose had to feed to keep himself alive during the winter. His big stomach demanded quantity, and it took him most of his time to nibble from the tops of bushes the two or three bushels he needed a day. The caribou required almost as much, the deer least of the three. And the storm kept up that day, and the next, and still a third, three days and three nights, and the third day and night there came with it a stinging shot like snow that fell two feet deep on the level, and in drifts of eight and ten. 
it was the heavy snow of the indians the snow that lay like lead on the earth and under which partridges and rabbits were smothered in thousands on the fourth day after the beginning of the storm kazan and gray wolf issued forth from the windfall there was no longer a wind no more falling snow the whole world lay under a blanket of unbroken white and it was intensely cold the plague had worked its havoc with men now had come the days of famine and death for the wild things end of chapter 12 of kazan by james oliver curwood recording by leonard wilson of springfield ohio